Hey, this is Nate, and uh, thank you for deciding to listen to our latest episode. Um, I wanted to record this special intro because I don't know how much uh, you all know about the process that we do with our podcast, uh, but I do all the editing. And, you know, (laughs) to say the least, a lot has uh, happened over the last few weeks. At the time of me recording this uh, intro, we are a, a little over a week into an official stay-at-home order for our state, the state that we record in, Illinois. And what I want to mention before we jump into this episode is that we recorded the entire thing early in, in this month before any sense of where things were going uh, was really on our mind, at least. I'm sure other experts were thinking about these things, you know, now we know quite a bit earlier. But uh, at the time of us recording this, it was just not on our mind. And so if we were just to put this episode up and you were to listen to it, I think you would think that uh, it, it didn't seem like we were um, arising to the occasion, I guess. And that's because when we recorded it, the occasion was not there. The episode would seem extremely awkward because especially at the end, when we preview our next episode, I mean, we talk about the Olympics, which have now been canceled. We talk about there being a library program that we might be presenting at, which all of that's up in the air now. So we couldn't just drop this episode and not say something about the the time and place in which it was recorded and where we're at now. So we just wanted to acknowledge that before jumping in. But what we're hoping is that maybe this episode, this Mikey and Nikki episode, uh, will just be maybe a, a welcome distraction for a lot of you who are stuck at home, who are in all sorts of different types of testing situations probably right now, whether that's physically, mentally, spiritually, wherever you're at. Um, At certain times, I think we could all just use something to just get our minds off of things a little bit. So that's kind of our goal with putting this episode out. So we don't actually know what this podcast will look like in the near future. Ryan and I will, you know, we'll discuss these things and and we'll kind of keep you guys updated through, you know, our social media channels. And, and, you know, we're definitely still going to be active We'll still be monitoring that stuff and checking in and posting. And so if you want to drop us a message or leave a comment, uh, we will definitely, we, we would love to hear it. Um, but you know, if you do have a lot of time on your hands and you would like to maybe catch up on some movies you've never seen, um, you know, check out our website's archives. We've got, uh, you know, close to 80 movies that we've done episodes on and you can go to uh, canwestillbefriends.net, go to, it's called The Movies is the name of the page. But it's essentially our archive of uh, every movie we've discussed. And we created a special list, if you go to that page. We've called it the Quarantine Stay-at-Home Stream-at-Home page. And and we've gone through all of our movies that we've discussed. And if they are available to stream on any of the popular streaming platforms, uh, you'll see those on that page. Uh, And that way you can kind of just look at what you have subscriptions to and see maybe what movies you'd want to watch and listen to our episodes. So I think that's about it. As far as this movie, uh, Mikey and Nikki, if you haven't already watched it, unfortunately, I think the only place you're going to be able to get it is streaming through the Criterion channel. But I mean, it's a great streaming service. So if you were looking into subscribing to a new one, uh, we would highly recommend it. Um, and it is a movie that we uh, you'll find out in this episode that we do highly recommend watching. Um, so I think that's about it. We hope you are staying safe. We hope you're staying healthy as much as possible. Uh, we hope you are um, listening to the experts and abiding by whatever orders your uh, general locality has put in place, which means that uh, we're guessing you're probably listening to this at home. If you're not, you better be doing something essential. And if you're not doing something essential, go back home. Uh, And with that said, uh, why don't we go ahead and roll our episode of Mikey and Nikki. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Eblin. For as much as our podcast is based on what makes people friends, we've never really discussed a movie in which limits of a friendship are tested. So for this episode, we're watching Elaine May's mob drama, Mikey and Nikki, centered on two longtime friends played by real-life friends, Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. I became a big fan of this movie after watching it for the first time recently, but Ryan had never seen it. Mikey and Nicky is often considered a forgotten gem of the new Hollywood era of the 1970s. After a contentious three-year editing process wherein Elaine May fought to keep Paramount Studios from releasing a film that differed from her final vision, Mikey and Nicky was released to mostly confused audiences and critics who expected a comedy. 
In the last five years, especially after a recent Criterion release, Mikey and Nikki has had a bit of a resurgence in popularity. But does Mikey and Nikki really have a place in today's film landscape? Or should we barricade the door and leave this movie outside? Keep listening. There's a contract out on Ed Lipsky and me. I know that for a fact. Resnick put it out. I know it for a fact. They're going to kill me, Nick. They're going to kill me. You are not going to die. I mean, even if somebody wants to kill you, that doesn't mean you're going to die. I want you to stop. Your stomach? Your stomach? Answer me. Yeah. You did it. Work yourself right up into a nose of the pack. All right, come on. All right, so there you have the clip from uh, the movie that we're going to be discussing this episode, Mikey and Nikki. Uh, I think that clip kind of sums up a lot of whatever the plot is of this movie. You've got uh, Nikki, played by John Cassavetes, talking to his kind of a lifelong friend, Mm -hmm. um, Mikey, as played by Peter Falk, and saying he thinks that they're after him. And at that point in the movie, it's it's a pretty disorienting start. It is. You don't really know who to believe. Uh Uh, You can't really tell if Nikki is insane you can't tell why he's in the hotel room yeah you can't you don't know anything you don't know if uh mikey is being honest or not Mm -hmm. um so yeah it sets up for a movie that uh i think the whole time you're kind of trying to figure out what some of the yeah truth and motives are and the whole thing who's trustworthy and who's somebody that you should be pulling for right if anybody if anybody is there anybody (laughs) that's worth pulling for in the course of the movie. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and so just so our listeners know, I think we're going to try to keep this episode moving along because yeah, we've got, we've got daylight, daylight savings, savings time. Yeah. We chose to record. Uh, plus we both have to be up early in the morning. Yeah. So, um, so if this episode seems like it's chugging along a little quicker than normal, um, it's just cause yeah. we're trying to be responsible adults here. I think. Right. <laughs> yeah. We want to try to get to bed a little bit. A yeah. Little bit. Although if there's any movie where we should be up all night talking about I, it, I, it would be that's Mikey very true. and Nikki, which... If we were it takes being, place yeah. over the course of one night. Um, right. Well, we can't be entirely accurate. We are, you know, we're not drinking Schmidt's beer. We're drinking right. Stella. Right. And uh, right. we don't have our cigarettes all over. And I, <laughs> right. I, forgot, I forgot the half and half. So. Right. Well, all right. So, so we're just we going to go 100%. We're going we're gonna to go quick. But why are we doing this movie? That's a good, could question. Be a good question. <laughs> this is your your pick. This is my pick. And I'm not saying that with accusation. I'm just saying Sure. But that is yeah, and and I know last time we had a hard time just coming up with a movie to do for some reason. Oh boy. Um and so it really came down to uh hey, this is a movie that um I think is underseen uh that I had just discovered recently. It has quickly quickly risen to be uh possibly even one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. So, um I just thought, hey, Ryan, you haven't seen this, and right. we should you should see it so we can talk about it. Um, and there was also sort of an element of why did I see it for the first time? And a big reason was um, not too long ago, I, I sort of, and I think you have too, sort of made a, a concerted effort to try to seek out women filmmakers um, because I think just realizing how male dominated the film industry is. Yep. What's the part you can play in that? The the bare minimum you can do is seek out women directors and women filmmakers and mm-hmm. support them. Um and when I found out um that this was a movie made in, you know, in the seventies and it was like a gangster movie and it was directed by Elaine May, I was like, how would I not how did I not heard about this? I hadn't yeah. even heard of the movie. Right. I um, hadn't either. And I was uh, an early member of the new-ish Criterion streaming channel. And if you were there at the very beginning, before they launched their channel, they had like a a month or two where they just had a movie of the week for people who had already signed up for it. It was one movie you could watch. That was it. And they launched everything with this movie, Mikey and Nikki. And I just saw the cast. The cast was where I was like, oh, this is, I'd never heard of this. But man, that's that's dynamite right there. And then I saw it was directed by Elaine May, and I was like, I think Criterion's kind of making an effort here to to really highlight women filmmakers. Sure. And since then, that's been confirmed, because if you are a Criterion yeah. streaming uh, uh, channel subscriber, 
they have usually a, a bunch of spotlights on women filmmakers and, and try to bring a lot of that into the conversation. Yeah. And I, in my reading about this movie, found out that Elaine May was only the third, third. Yeah. woman ever to direct a Hollywood studio movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After the silent era. Yeah, in the, yes, yeah. in the, in the, yeah. Because in the silent era, strangely, there were a lot of w- women filmmakers. Yeah, well, yeah, because people didn't take it necessarily seriously. Right. It was, so there was this novelty thing, mm-hmm. and when women... Questionable whether you'd make any money off right. the movies at all. And when women made great movies that made money, the men were like, oh, we'll take it from here. <laughs> God, yeah. and That's uh, history for you, folks. Yep, yep. And uh, I, I could not believe only the third, third. woman ever. yeah. To direct in in the the silent era start, er, ended in 1929, so this it's was decades. Yeah, yeah, this was all, almost 45 years. That's crazy, right? <laughs> to say the least. But then also crazy that this movie is one I had never heard of until you you mentioned it. Yeah, and again, seen it. I had only heard of it because Criterion spotlighted it. Yeah, so that was when. I had only watched it uh, just a little over a year ago. I watched it like at late January Mm -hmm. of last year. So I've only sat with this movie even for a little over a year. Yeah. And I've sat with it for two hours now. Oh, really? It's that close. Okay. (laughs) I just saw it. Okay. All right. Had a busy week. Sure. That's understandable. So um, that's a little bit of context why we chose it. I can talk a little bit more about first experiences, but I don't know. You don't have a first experience. Well, I do. I just have that. That just that, right? The one that you just talked about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I can just talk a little bit more about when I did see it the first time. I just remember that I was like, you know what? I'll I'll give it a shot. You know, and I only had planned to watch it for a few minutes because it was getting late and everything. Um, but it was just one of those times where you you start a movie not intending to watch it all the way through, and then you just can't really stop watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminded me a lot of Cassavetti's movies, like his yeah, movies, definitely. you know? Um, and so it definitely had that feel to it. And I know that a lot of his movies have a lot of improvisation to them and yeah. they're very, they had that same kind of loose feel to them. Uh, and so after I was finished watching it and just kind of being really, you know, blown away by the movie, I was even more blown away to find out that that loose feel in the movie um, was created because every word spoken in this movie is in the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just being blown away again, like really by Elaine May, like Elaine May's ability to make this movie. And then reading more about uh, what we hinted at in our intro about all the struggles with just getting to make the movie she wanted to make yeah, and reading more about just the story of its making and, and everything behind it just gave me an even greater appreciation mm-hmm. for it. Uh, since then, um, I think I talked about in our last episode, we, selected this as a uh, film to show at my library cinema club. Mm -hmm. So I watched it again for that um, and was kind of like one of those, well, was I just sort of, you know, on a high when I watched it that first time? Was it, was it, was the feelings I had real or was it just sort of like uh, being excited about a movie I had never heard about actually being decent, you know? Um, But no, I was confirmed that second time. Like I liked it just as much that second time I watched it. Um, And and it's different because then you actually know, you know, who's who's being honest and who's not. And you you know a lot more about what's coming. You know about those uncomfortable scenes that are coming up. Um, And so it it's a totally different experience if you watch it again, but I thought just as rewarding. Yeah. Um, and that's where I was, you know, going into it for uh, our conversation tonight and watching yeah. it a third time. Yeah. It's always fun when you find that movie that's sort of like a undiscovered thing, at least to you, but it, then it's hard because most other people haven't. <laughs> you don't know who to talk to about it. That's true. And in a lot of cases, and I've had this happen too, partly it is that it just connected with you. Mm-hmm. And there's a good reason why a lot of other people haven't heard about it. It's mm-hmm. just not that universally loved, right. you know. Not uh, doesn't have an appeal factor that reaches much beyond you. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I, I don't need to. I don't know. That I really even need to state it. But the first time I watched it, it was a five star mm-hmm. on Letterboxd. It, it, it was one that reached that level to me, mm-hmm. um, and it's just kind of stayed that okay. uh, as I've watched it. So I think I was a little um, more disoriented because. I think your praise of it made me think that there was going to be something more to my experience. Yeah. Um, like you were waiting for something yeah, bigger to happen. Yeah. And so 
long story short, we'll get into it more later. I, I've got it at a four right now on Letterboxd, which isn't a bad rating. But I think if I hadn't... So immediately after watching it, I watched some of the interviews on uh, Criterion and um, read a few essays. And that, like you said, learning more about it, that really helped me understand it more and also kind of solidified some things that I wasn't sure if I was like, is that something to appreciate or not? (laughs) Well, and we should get to that because there are definitely moments where you have to kind of ask yourself like Mm -hmm. like like the question you've been asking for our last few episodes do i need this yeah you could definitely ask that there's about 15 minutes yes oh yeah yeah where i think any viewer is going to be squirming in their seat a little bit and wondering is this good for me to watch yes you know so as an intro into our talk of the movie proper let's talk about some of the the ways that this movie was made like what what was going on um around the production of this because i i actually was i'm not familiar with elaine may i don't know it like you kind of say elaine may like i should know who she is or that you know no. who she is i i i really have not like the, the more i read about her the more i was like i've heard i read I've, I've heard her name in various circles elaine may to me is someone that i was in the same boat as you and only after sort of like sitting with this movie for a year and talking with a few more people about it, especially older people that I've mm-hmm. talked to about it, um, it might be a generational thing. Because, mm-hmm. um, and, but I do think we it, it's it's unfortunate actually that we're not like, oh yeah, Elaine May, right? Be- because we we are like that towards Mike Nichols. Yes. Oh yeah, Mike Nichols. For, right. Of course, The Graduate, and yeah. I've seen so many Mike Nichols films. And so the reason you're mentioning Mike Nichols with Elaine May right. is because they both got their careers started working together as improvisational comedians, yeah. and they were in the '60s huge with um, not quite stand up because yeah, it was I think '50s and '60s, '50s and yeah. '60s, yeah. Um, but they had like Grammy winning comedy albums that were largely based on kind of long-form improvisation. Yeah, it was like sketches. Um, They had a TV show. Yeah, Um, yeah. And then they both kind of got into more writing and directing. Mike Nichols started on Broadway. I don't know if Elaine made it or not. I think she wrote some plays and stuff. Yeah, some plays. But then Mike Nichols became Mike Nichols with um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the, the screen adaptation, and then The Graduate. Um, and they their their relationship ended, and um, then she directed a movie called A New Leaf, a New Leaf with yeah. Walter Matthau, and then and she was in that too. Yes, she yeah. she was kind of the she was a female lead in that. And it was kind uh, of a romantic and, comedy. Wrote and directed, right? Then the Heartbreak Kid, yeah, which I had seen, but I don't think it really ever clicked that that was Elaine May. Have you seen Heartbreak Kid? I have not. Yeah, I, I want to now that I've seen Mikey and Nikki. I want to see both of those movies. Yeah, I I liked it. I didn't like it nearly as much as Mikey and Nikki, but um, well, those are both pretty straight comedies, right? And then, unfortunately, Elaine May is most famous for directing Ishtar, which was this massive failure of a movie, right? And it's the last movie she ever directed. Right. Which actually, I've I've read from several people that that one also deserves another look. Now I haven't seen it. I've read that too. Um, but I think there was a lot of hype around it that made it just it had a lot of expectation. Mm-hmm. And if Mikey and Nikki's any indication, Elaine May is not anybody who meets no. expectations that you have. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, and a big reason this movie flopped was because people were expecting a comedy, right? Because uh, after two yeah. romantic comedies, she's got this very character based. Yeah. Not very straightforward, run-and-gun feel gangster movie. Right. And it does have extremely dark, but it does have some funny parts. I thought there were some parts that were super funny. Yes. Um, but, and so that's in there, but it's not a comedy. So, and, and the studio, I think, hedging their bets a little bit, their poster even said, don't expect, don't expect to like them. That, <laughs> that was the, the tagline <laughs> of the movie, which they released Google it. search the poster, it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, which they released at Christmas, which also was a bad idea. Right. Um, but the way she shot this movie, so it was her first big Hollywood studio movie, and 
I think they were expecting something along the lines of Heartbreak Kid, yeah. A New Leaf. And we should probably mention this was also, before you talk about the shooting, it, this is a very personal project for her. Right. She had been supposedly she grew up. growing up in a family that was somehow connected to organized, to, to organized crime. crime and also um, had been working, if you talk to people who knew her, she had been working on this for um, possibly decades. But the way she shot the movie, she shot the movie in 1973 and spent three years editing it, so it wasn't released until 1976. According to IMDb trivia, whether this is true or not, she shot over a million no, feet that's of true. film yeah. for the production. It was a record. And the filmmaking process sounds fascinating. There's a, another story of, of the shooting where Cassavetes and Falk left, like they finished the scene and walked off the set and were done, they thought, for the day. And the cameras were still rolling and a cameraman called Cut and Elaine May was like, why'd you yell Cut? And he said, because the actors left. And she said, well, they might come back. (laughs) And so she just wanted to get everything so that she had a lot to work with. It kind of reminds me of when I hear stories about how Malick works, Mm -hmm. where he's just constantly shooting. And Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like, we'll piece it together later. Although this seems a lot more focused. Like, she really wants her script to be in there. Yeah, (laughs) As far as Malick is a lot more like, we can jettison the script. Right, but But she just wanted to be able to catch the best moments. So she wanted all the moments. And there's an interview, if you watch some of the Criterion features, there's an interview with Joyce Van Patten, who plays Jan. Um, She plays Nikki's uh, wife. Mm Mm-hmm. And she just talks about the process of where, you know, this was also the the type of movie where Elaine May was going to make you do takes over and over and over again, basically to the point where the actors didn't even have to think about their lines and could just be those people. But she said that what also happens when you do that is you're getting very annoyed. Mm -hmm. You're in sort of close quarters. It's getting kind of hot and everyone just starts getting a little tense. Um, And so that actually comes through a little bit. Mm -hmm in the scenes where not only do they feel supernatural because they've been doing this scene forever, but Mm -hmm. they're also just kind of pissed off a little bit at each other. Right. You know? Yeah. And she said her scene was six pages and that's usually shot in a day and they shot it over the course of four days. Right. So they were doing those same six pages over and over and over again. Plus the whole, the whole movie takes place at night. So they were shooting all night. Uh There was just, it's pretty, uh, sounds like a pretty, astoundingly draining process it does but then you you also get the sense that this is a director that and one of the things that she had a vision but not only that but immediately when i watched it the first time i was like this is this is acting like i i feel like you are watching grade a actors doing some of their best work in this movie that no one's heard of right (laughs) you want to see like peter falk is always amazing yeah cassavetes is you know, always amazing as far as what I've seen right. of him. And you're just watching them work off each other in this really, really intense way um, that feels so natural. I mean, I don't know. As far as like male actors go, it feels like Brando level performances working off each other, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. I got the sense immediately after watching this that even knowing very little about Elaine May, I was like, she must really know how to work with actors yes, you know, and how to get the best out of actors. Yeah. So... Getting into the actual viewing, I'll say my first note was, I'm pretty confused. And that was at like 15 minutes in. Because, like we said, the movie just just sort of starts with John Cassavetes freaking out in a hotel room and calling Mikey. And we don't know who John Cassavetes is. We don't know who Mikey is. We don't know what their jobs are, what they're involved in. Is he mentally unstable? And this is like, because Mikey seems to more or less know what's going on mm-hmm. as far as his freak out. Um, and then it's not until, I don't know, I don't know how late. You just have to start piecing it together. that yeah. They are yeah. part of organized crime that Nikki thinks there's a hit out on him. And I don't even know how soon you find out it's because he did something. Mm-hmm. Like he stole, he took money. Right. Um, but it was a disorienting start for me in a way that didn't necessarily draw me in. Hmm. But overall, it's it needs to start that way because it's not a conventional gangster movie. And if you went, if if she followed any beats of gangster movies or set things up in a way that acted like it was going to be like another gangster movie, it would be even probably eventually more disorienting because it would then never follow any of those expectations. 
Right. And I mean, I think that a lot of this movie is about disrupting your expectations of what a gangster movie should be to the point where you have to actually sit with it for a while to realize, oh, this is a gangster movie. Right. I mean, if you don't know that going in, it'll take you a while to even figure that out. Yeah. Because there's a, a whole slew of reasons why he could be freaking out. It's, it is disorienting. Um, and it does kind of kick off just right. It feels like you're, you're like interrupting in the middle of a movie almost. Yeah. And I also feel like it takes you a while to not only piece together what's going on, but to also come to the realization that you may never get all the details and you actually don't really need them. Mm-hmm. It, 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 when you finally figure right. it out, it's kind of, a, it's a pretty simple story. Yeah. Um, but it takes you a while to realize that that simple story is probably all there's going to be to it and that that's kind of okay. Like, I don't yeah. need to know the structure of whatever family they're a part of right. or, you know, what, what the, what the actual... Even what the main business is. No, of, not... These are just low-level gangsters right. and involved I, in it. I think that uh, that's a lot of what uh, she's even trying to say about the gangster movie is... I mean, this is definitely a movie that's not going to romanticize Mm-mm. being a gangster or what that can even get you because usually the gangster movie is about trying to gain power. Yeah. And a lot of this movie is somewhat about that, but it's more or less just the realization that, I mean, these are just pretty low level thugs and they can maybe battle it out with each other, but it's pretty pathetic. First of all. And second of all, you realize they ain't ever going to rise above what they are. Right. And they may even kind of realize that. And I think that she's, shining a light on the fact that this is what the typical gangster life is. We mm-hmm. romanticize gangster movies because we look at the Don or the leader of the family. Right. And that might have a really big dramatic arc to it. Mm-hmm. But the reality of most organized crime is you're talking about these low level, just basically pawns battling it out with each other in their insecurities for what, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's essentially about just the general insecurities people have when in any sort of way they're sort of pitted against each other. Yeah. But that's not even the main point. It's sort of like, I think it was the AV Club wrote, um, it's about how the movie's like about how partnerships work and how they fall apart. Yeah, and that was Nathan Rabin when he wrote for the AV Club. Um, they they aren't partners in, in organized crime. Like you find out that Mikey and Nikki actually work pretty far from each other yeah. Yeah. In, in this. They're both just involved. But they had been very close and they had been through the hardest parts of each other's childhoods together. And they had this partnership and this bond and what happened to form that and what happens when that starts to go away. Now, some people remarked like Mikey and Nikki, Mike Nichols, like, and she's mm-hmm. writing about a partnership that was long standing hmm. and now yeah, it's, now it's falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Um, Could be. Yeah. But it's also like, like we said, she, she grew up in this world and she knew the guys that Mikey and Nikki are. And um, the movie is so much less interested in that glamorized plotting, scheming, carrying out of executions, gaining power, gaining territory. And it's more about what are the conversations behind those things or like up totally apart from those things. Like instead of seeing the hit, we spend way more time with the hitman who is himself very low level (laughs) He's one of the funniest parts of the whole he movie, is. I think. But like it's, Ned Bate, they're talking about Ned, Ned Beatty's Beatty, character. Yeah, Ned, he's the hired killer, and that's it's it's just a job to him. One that he's even complaining he might not make a whole lot of yeah, money. Yeah, it's not it's not a lot of money. He's trying to break into it, but his first scene is him trying to just get television reception in his hotel <laughs> right. and waiting around for the phone call. I figure fifteen twenty minutes from here. Um, it depends on that later traffic. <clears throat> All right, now when they get second and south. I'll call the B&O Tavern. I let the phone ring three times. Understand that? And then we're with him in traffic. <laughs> and he can't figure out where this place is. And he's and got to pull out the map and try to like write it all out. He stops and asks for yeah. directions. Yeah. And it's just, it's funny, but it's also, to me, it was just a really fascinating side of the yeah. gangster movie that you never would even think would exist. Yeah, his whole role is just mundane frustration yeah like the kind of stuff that pisses me and you off in a day <laughs> right is the same exact stuff that pisses off this contract killer and like know? and one of the things that pisses him off is the the spot they kept telling him to go to didn't have parking <laughs> right. and so he's like 
It's like I I waited in and there was a no parking spot. I I I sat in what it wasn't even a parking yeah. spot for like an hour. And it's funny, but it's not just like this spoof of gangster movies no, either. No, no, no. To me, it felt like almost like as if that at least that chunk of the movie was like as if Larry David had written uh, a gangster movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like definitely. it's all about parking, definitely, and like yeah. getting reception on the TV. Right. <laughs> yeah, like stopping and asking for directions, and like the guy, he's like, "I'm looking for South yeah. Street." Well, North is that. Well, way. and then even when they're and when when him and Mikey are in the car together, and he's like, "Is that him?" Is that him? No. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. You want to shoot him just in case? What's the matter? Just ask a question. Well, for Christ's sakes, if I say it's not him, I ought to know. Yeah, you ought to know. And then they see somebody that they think is Nikki and chase him down, and then he's like, that's not him. (laughs) So... I mean, this movie is about two characters, like Mikey and Nikki. That's the name of the movie, but it's not even about Mikey having a hit out on him. The gangster storyline, just it, it's, it could be anything. Right. But it's about these two people. So the movie relies, it succeeds or it dies on the success of creating those two characters. And by that standard, this is incredible, especially the way the characters unfold. I think... First Nikki and then Mikey, where I I sort of was like, all right, Nikki's agitated, like he thinks that somebody's going to kill him. That's why he's acting this way. Then as the movie goes on, you're sort of like, he keeps putting himself in situations where he's going to get in trouble mm-hmm. or killed, and he just seems over after, after a certain point, he just seems awful. Yeah, this is clear that it's only a matter of time before somebody is going to want to kill him. Yeah, I mean, awful in a lot of ways too. So I mean, he's racist. He's he's misogynist. He cheats on his wife. He's also just annoying and self-centered. Yeah, I feel like we all kind of know a person like that where they're immediately likable. Mm -hmm. Like immediately when you meet, they're super charismatic. They they know how to talk to people, and Mm -hmm. they also do seem to have this like emotional side to them that's that's very intriguing. Yeah, and then. It's like the more you t- the more you spend time with them, you're like you're you're kind of just a wreck. I, I think actually, you know, Mikey kind of says it best. Like, you know, do you have any notion of what goes on outside your head? Mm-hmm. You know, he's just so self absorbed. Which is where the movie, I think, takes its best emotional turn is when Mikey finally tells, and we finally understand the, the full nature of their relationship, which yeah. was that they were very close as kids. Mikey introduced Nikki into the kind of the crime family. And once Nikki found a little bit of success, he stopped caring about Mikey. So sure, Mikey's betraying Nikki, but we find in that moment, the first betrayal happened when Nikki abandoned their friendship. Right. Don't you have any notion of anything that goes on outside your own head? Don't you have any idea how people feel? Can't you understand that my father gave me this watch? It's the only thing I have for my father. What do you want? You want another one? Forget it. Huh? Mike, I'm gone. Hey, Mike. I'm sorry about the watch. Take your gun. And I'm sorry about the girl, too. What, what else you want me to say? Nothing. I don't want you to say anything. I just don't want to do it anymore. What? Be your friend. Then I'll be your friend. No, you'll be my friend. When you're not in trouble. See, I don't want you to be my friend just when there's nobody else around. What are you talking about? I'm your friend when other people are around. No, you're not. You don't know who I am when other people are around. Peter Falk is incredible in that scene. And um, we'll stay in this. We'll, we'll stay in like what's really great about the Mikey and Nikki relationship. But for me, once Mikey and Nikki part, the movie goes a little haywire. Mm. And that's where I sort of like lose it a little bit um you mean when they go apart as far as when mikey when they stop being in ned, the same yeah, yeah when they ned Beatty when they when then, they literally yeah. are not on screen together yeah. anymore okay but one thing that would be an interesting thing on the rewatch is probably one of the single most difficult scenes i've seen in a movie in a long time is the scene with nell oh my god yes and, and i wrote down in my notes I said, this part doesn't get any easier to watch. (laughs) Well, one of the things that was really difficult to watch for me was trying to figure out what Mikey is doing. 
Because up until that point, I had pretty much thought Mikey was the good guy. Mm-hmm. And certainly in this scene, Mikey is a terrible person. Nikki's arguably worse, but Mikey's a terrible person in this scene. But because for two-thirds of that scene, I was seeing Mikey as that good guy, my whole thought was, what are you doing there? Why are you letting this happen? What is, what's going on here? If you haven't seen the movie, so this is a scene where Nikki takes Mikey. He keeps saying, you want to go to that girl. You want to go see that yeah. girl. You want to go see that girl. And he promises him this quote-unquote party with this girl. It's Nikki's mistress. I mean, it's basically, let's go find this girl who has this reputation that she gives it to everyone. Right. And what becomes clear is that this is a, a woman that Nikki takes advantage of mm-hmm. who does not like having sex with Nikki, but he forces himself on her. Mikey's in the apartment the whole time. Then once Nikki's done, he tells Mikey it's his turn. And Mikey tries to take a turn. And it is a heartbreaking performance by Carol Grace, who plays Nell. Uh, I think they call her Nell in the movie. But yeah. But she, uh, she hasn't been in many movies. No, I think she was mainly a, a stage performer. It's an incredible performance. It's hard to watch and it's hurtful to watch. It is. Like, my first thoughts on that were, this scene is terribly uncomfortable. Then it was, what is Mikey thinking? Then it was, scratch that, this scene is unbearable. And then I said, what the fuck? This scene is awful. And this is a scene where I would ask, do I need this? Right. I and think that's a fair question. This is I don't know how this is going to sound, but I was willing to give it more attention, knowing that it was directed by a woman. Yeah, and written. And written. That... that this is someone who decided it needed to be in there. Right. And I think that a lot of times when men think these kind of scenes need to be in there, there's a lot of not always healthy emotions going on with that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that just having a woman directing it uh, gives it all the, you yeah. know, gives it a blank check right. necessarily. Um, but it does make me ask a little bit deeper of what's the purpose yeah. this is serving in the movie. It certainly illuminates Mikey and Nikki as characters. These are terrible men or men mm-hmm. who are who are capable of terrible things yeah so i think you saw the same criterion video with joyce van patten um she said elaine was writing what she knew as far as what she had seen growing up in what like the way that these low-level gangsters treated women in the way that men treat women and in the way that women are victimized I think uh, Nathan Rabin wrote, too, that it was illustrating how it comes about that women are in this no-win situation of if they're sexual at all, then they're damaged goods. But if they're not willing to have sex, then they're somehow disrespecting the men. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that felt it's, – it's, I think it's just honest – yeah, even though it's really hard to watch, it's honest that Mikey comes away from that situation feeling the one who's been done right. wrong, right? Because she wouldn't have sex with him. But it's interesting that he doesn't feel wronged by her. Yeah. He feels wronged by Nikki. Yeah, he uh, feels like Nikki lied to him about yeah. it, so that he he like that Nikki knew she wouldn't want to sleep have sex with Mikey, and that Nikki was just boasting. Right. That he's got more than Mikey. Which I think is also honest in yeah. the fact that the woman is really even more just an object and that the men, they're just oblivious that any power dynamic at all is a power dynamic between the two of them. Yeah. Not at all about the power that they're wielding over this, you yeah. know, really vulnerable woman. Right. And Nell is, um, is, is a very sad character. But I think there's a lot of truth to the, that probably being just what she yeah. knew. We constantly ask... You know, why do women let themselves be taken advantage of this way by men? That's a common refrain, yeah. It is, yeah. And and I think what this movie shows is, did they really have a choice? Also digging into the men's agency in this. Like you said, it's possibly that possible to see it that Nell didn't really have a choice, but Mikey and Nikki absolutely did. Yeah. To vilify the victim or to question the victim and their resolve is so twisted because the number of times that i was just like mikey stop this like get nikki out of there then get nikki off of her and then to have mikey not only not do any of those things but then to actively go and try to have sex with her again was like just 
underlining the number of times that the men were making conscious choices in some really demented game between the two of them. It's a brave thing on her part to ask us to sympathize and get to know these characters and then show them at their worst. Yeah. The thing that continually makes me think this is a cut above not only your average gangster movie, but just a lot of character-driven movies in general is the way it handles contradictions. It is a movie of contradictions. Mm -hmm. And the characters to me seem so realized that those contradictions all make sense. They're not easy. They're not fun to watch at all. But they kind of have to be there to, to really highlight those contradictions. And what this movie shows you, I think, more than any other movie I've seen is that they're doing good and bad things and they have good and bad motivations. Yeah. Like they're all, it's all entangled in there. But you know? the, as far as motivations go, I think that's what make this, we've, uh, at least I've said that it doesn't, almost doesn't matter that this is a gangster movie. In that way it does because then it's sort of showing the effect of the twisted logic of this that like they're in a business and a lifestyle where aiding in the murder of your childhood friend is a good career move. Mm-hmm. And there's like this twisted morality. It's where the definition of good and bad motives gets very, very hard to discern. And also like that good and bad may not even be the right scale to look at this on because I mean, it's so obvious right away that uh, especially with that scene with Nell, that, that these, these men feel entitled to a lot yeah. And that's actually a source of a lot of their disagreements. Yeah. It's basically like they're fighting amongst each other over what they're more entitled to, you mm-hmm. know? It, um, basically, it's hurt feelings. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a huge immaturity level there. Mm-hmm. It actually goes back to our American Psycho yeah. conversation, I yeah. think, where there's a lot of childish... And I, and I don't even mean that as in like the fact that they're acting, you know, kind of like tantrum-y and stuff yeah. like that. And I mean, like, I think there's something to be said there. Like, she really makes Nikki seem like a child like he won't take his pills yep and mikey has to kind of be the parent figure that kind of like pushes him down like yeah open the door for the train (laughs) so there's that plus what's he want to do he wants to go to a movie theater because they got candy you know and then they want to go get ice cream you know like i think there's just a comic book and a lot of that is like and that goes back to the good and bad thing because childish in the sense of yeah they're children in their sense of entitlement and picking fights like schoolyard fights with people on the bus Mm -hmm. things like that that's the bad side of the childish and then there's the, the endearing side of the childishness yeah. like the basically like these are like children they still have these like childlike feelings of just wanting candy at a movie theater and yeah like, childish too in the sense that everybody who hasn't figured out how to deal with their hurt feelings which is most of us yeah is still operating at a very reactionary childish undeveloped level you see it in the 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 cemetery scene there's pain that they haven't been able to deal with the pain of losing a brother the pain of losing mothers the pain of losing fathers you don't know what i mean oh, of course not because i'm stupid oh i i wish i wish my mother was alive i wish your mother was alive and i wish your father was alive and i wish your, my father was alive and i wish your brother izzy was alive Did you know my brother, Izzy? Sure. God, don't you remember? I mean, he lost all his hair. And then we killed him baldy the next day he died. And then we went out down to the grave and we, we said, we're sorry, we apologized. He was 10 years old, God rest his soul. My poor brother. Oh, this is terrible. It's it's interesting to me that Mikey, who is potentially the more mature, emotionally mature of the two characters, he's the one who says he remembers seeing his father cry about his brother's death. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like insignificant that Mikey had a male role model in his life who he saw deal with emotions at one point. Right. Even though he also says, my dad was a very sour man. And it goes back to the watch where you can tell there's still a lot of like processing and he's still pretty hurt by the fact that uh, he tries to rationalize it and justify it when he's talking about how his dad gave Izzy the watch, but he only did that because Because he was going to die. It was supposed to be for me. It was supposed to be for me because I was the, I was the firstborn son. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that like, he doesn't even really believe that. Yeah. 
but he's he rationalizing. Needs, he he's working. He needs it. to believe it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of wisdom in this movie in the yeah. sense of like, they have that really tender moment. And then you find out at the end of the movie that he's never even brought that brother up to his own wife. Right. And he can't talk to his wife the same way. Mm-hmm. And it, that's just this sort of throwaway theme in there. You yeah. know, like just this idea of like the people that you grow up with at that age know you in a way that it's very hard to match. And it, it, it lends this extra weight to what Mikey's doing. It's also, I think, like you said, this is a wise movie. One of the ways that I see it being wise is in the way that um, Mikey and Nikki both talk about their kids, but we never see Mikey see his kid. And it seems like this isn't uncommon for him to not be there at bedtime and that sort of thing. And his son is beating up everybody in the nursery school. And Nikki very clearly has no relationship with his five-month-old child. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of talk of fathers and brothers and then a lot of talk of sons and children, and they just aren't seeing that connection between their inability to process their feelings and then their disconnect from their families mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. their children's like acting out or their children's development and their absence from their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also interesting with Ned Beatty's character that his desire to complete the job is not because of the sort of typical trope of he always gets his man sort of Mm -hmm. hit man. Like he's that professional. He lives by a code. He is that good at his job. Like he is so driven because he's super insecure because if I don't do this, then this night was a waste Mm -hmm. and people will know I'm not a good hit man. And that right there is a huge dose of wisdom from Elaine May to say that like, Oh, men's violent tendencies, mainly insecurity, mainly needing to prove something. Yep. You know, another area where I felt like I knew Elaine May was coming from a very wise place in this movie is the way that she portrays in just one scene race and the racism that you see in Nikki, but also the way that the people in the bar respond to it. The tension in that room. Everybody in here knows you the man. So why don't you leave? I mean, we might be black, but we ain't dumb. Well, how come you're black? Male. What did you say? Oh, take it yeah. 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 It's a pretty intense scene just to sit through. Yeah. Um, but just the handling of it, it shows a lot of layers of the racism that's going on there that are beyond just that yeah. are beyond just the fact that Nikki is just saying racist things and right. being a jerk. But the fact that he thinks he can just do that. Yeah. Talk up another man's girlfriend. And the multiple levels of entitlement right. and power at play. And also the sense that you could very well see him being like, hey, I was just joking. Yeah, He thinks he's being really lighthearted. Yeah. And again, that scene, um, just like every other scene, really, again, like, this is the movie's called Mikey and Nikki. It's about those two characters. The way that that scene informs what you think at that time of Nikki, yeah. it's another way to remind you, no, this guy is just a jerk. There's nothing to really like about this guy. Right. And- even though he's the first person we meet and even though he's ostensibly the main character and even though we understand him not wanting to die and even though in any other movie what we would be hoping for is for him to get away not this one right like <laughs> he's a he's a he's a terrible person yeah to the point where at the end i mean he does get his comeuppance and he does die yeah um you only feel bad for him in the sense of like the betrayal from mikey, from mikey that's yeah. it you don't yeah, necessarily Mikey. feel bad because this is like a great guy that's getting gunned down yeah. or, you know, someone who is wrongfully accused or really didn't deserve it because his heart was in the right place. Right. No, you only feel bad in the sense of like, man, that sucks to be betrayed by someone who was your childhood friend. And that's it. it sucks that both of them lost the closest relationship they had. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't draw you in, in a way that's inviting or in a way that is fun. Yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say that it draws you in as in like this, yeah, this is going to be an enjoyable experience or um, even necessary, I wouldn't even say entertaining is the right word. Part of it is in the way it's shot, just that sort of grittiness, the night aspect of it. There's something about the movie itself and just the vibe that it gives off. Yeah. That's just very intriguing to me. And I've only seen one Cassavetes movie, A Woman Under the Influence. Um, have you Have you seen any Cassavetes? Yep. Like these aren't movies that are necessarily a joy or no. fun to watch, no. but there's something about them. And, and it's not, I want to say you can't look away, but that makes it sound like it's a train wreck or something yeah. like that. 
it could be just as simple as there's a rawness and a realness to the acting that you're seeing that you just don't see in almost any other type of movie uh-huh. that throws you for a loop, I think, the first time you see something like that, and you just have to see more of it. We, we didn't really talk about that much about just how physical these performances are. There's the obvious physicality of like, you know, when they're fighting and things like that, but yeah. just also the way Peter Falk like hugs yeah. Cassavetes and kind of like squeezes, squeezes his, neck. his neck a little bit. It's got this physicality to it that's like super nurturing mm-hmm. and loving, but that squeezing of the neck could also be interpreted as, you know. It was definitely like a dude squeezing another dude's neck. Yeah. It wasn't tender. No, no. It was just, but it was, it was perfect. And they're just these little touches like them just kind of slipping every once in a while mm-hmm. or, you know. Or they're just really comfortable getting close to each yeah. other. Like there are times where they're just like, all of a sudden, like Peter Falk will lean in real close yeah, yeah. to Cassavetta's face, and Cassavetta just doesn't flinch. Yeah, like, they're just very comfortable with each other. Again, it's like I, I can't take my eyes off this. This is yeah. intensity in the acting because there's not really, for a gangster movie especially, there's just not a lot of action that no. happens here at no. all. But there is a lot of intensity, and the intensity just comes even in just the body language yeah. and, and, the, and the way they look at each other. And when they let scenes go on, and linger that each scene has layers and layers and layers that if you're not listening to the words they're saying, you're looking at how they're looking at each other or you're looking at how they're sitting even, or you're looking at how much they're pausing and never knowing if it's going to be an explosive thing that happens next, or if it's going to be, you know, uh, just something funny that happens next. Um, it it keeps you on your toes, I guess a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to stop it. Like I wasn't, it wasn't a chore for me. I guess I, 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 it was disorienting, I think. And it kept me kind of, it never, I never felt comfortable in the sense that I never, I, I, I'm never fully on the same page as the movie until it ends hmm. when I can finally see what it was doing. But I did, yeah, I did enjoy it. I think, I don't know if I'd move it up from four stars at all. I think I have to keep it at four. Um, but I really am glad I saw it, and now I know about Elaine May, and yeah. I would like to, if there's a way to watch other movies by her, because <laughs> I don't think Heartbreak Kid or A New Leaf are very widely. Oh, is that local library? Okay, so you're gonna. You said you're gonna stick with uh, four stars. You think? I think so. Again, this is a little tough because I'm I'm within the the first like my six hours of life with this movie. <laughs> four stars is a good rating, though. Yeah, not bad. No, it's it is. I but I I can see it rising in my memory. I understand that for whatever reason, this movie hit me right away. Yeah, but it's also one that as I sat with it more, it only confirmed what I saw. I think I already said even at the beginning that even at my third time, I was, you know, going to have it at five, and I don't have any real reason after our discussion to change I don't that. Know if anything know. ever knocks a movie out of five, no, once it's there. You only get to five if it's a super personal experience. Yeah. And it's very hard for someone to talk you out of that. Well, it, I mean, we're a star difference. Are you okay with us being best buds? Yeah, because there was never a moment, I don't think, where we just completely disagreed on like an aspect of the movie necessarily. Right. You know, Is there an aspect of Mikey and Nikki's friendship that you think mirrors our friendship? <laughs> Who's the Mikey and who's the Nikki? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I hope neither of us is really <laughs> Nikki or Mikey for that matter. But is there something about the way they relate to each other or do for each other that you can see we share? Uh, I don't know. Do you have an ulcer? No. no I don't either. But if I had one, that would I, be it. I'd hope that you would, you know, be there at the door with the half and half and the, and the whatever, whatever that, whatever that was. was. Alka-Seltzer yeah. sort of. But, but it, uh, yeah, enforce it and enforce, it enforce in, you to yeah. chew it. Yeah. I would if you had an ulcer and Andrea wasn't around. That's good to know. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I do see, though, is if uh, one of us is kind of, you know, uh, either being really hard on ourselves or needs to calm down a little bit, I think yeah. the other person comes around and says, hey, that's true. hey, Nikki. Yeah. Nick, you're a little out of control. Yeah. You know, you need yeah, to calm down true. a little bit. Also, I don't think any cemetery gate ever stopped us. <laughs> that's true. That's true. We are, we are uh, what do they call them? Cemetery, cemetery freaks. Cemetery freaks. That, that's, we've been known to be a cemetery freak every now and then. <laughs> For the record, <laughs> no, we have not. <laughs> I don't want to define cemetery freak. Uh, so, best buds. Best buds, yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel good. Yeah. 
So, uh, what, what should we, you know, move on and I suppose talk so. about our next episode? Yeah. All right, let's do that. So, for next time, we're being a little bit more self-serving than we normally are in picking movies. So, in the in the summer, at some point, we're going to be presenting at a local library about um, our favorite sports movies mm-hmm. because the Olympics are coming up and something like that. Yeah, more details. Yeah, to we'll come. have more details. That being said, they chose the topic. And Nate and I are sort of like... The topic being sports movies. Sports movies, yeah. yeah. Well, then we should watch some sports movies. Right. Which I've seen some. Me especially, because at least you're into sports. Right. So I have that. we got a lot of catching up to do, is what yeah. you're saying. But at the same time, and this is... Nate thought this was a specious connection, but I'll, I'll share it with Go you. Ahead. Go for it. It's we gotta spring make it time, yeah. and we're, we're looking to get outside a little bit sure. more. Yeah. And uh, in local high schools, spring sports have started, and girls' soccer is a spring mm. sport. All right, so where are we getting at here? So uh, <laughs> we're going to be watching um, Bend It Like Beckham from 2002, directed by Gurinder Chadha. Um, I saw it once a long time ago. Was it 2002? It was probably around then. This was on my. You've I made never a. Seen it. I made a list of what I'm going to have to watch before we give this talk. Yeah. And it was on my list, and so this is a great way to be like, hey, we can do the podcast, yeah. knock this off the list, yeah. get prep, Co- couple prep birds. for the right. prep, prep for the session in the summer. So yeah, yeah a couple birds, a flock, a whole, whole flock. flock with one stone. It'll more or less be like a first viewing for me. I don't, okay. I don't right. even really don't, have feelings. You don't have feelings about it. I don't know if I. I don't know if I letterbox rated it in good conscience. I mean, maybe a little bit of disgust because the main character is a major Manchester United fan. Oh boy! So you're going to bring all that in? I've got some. I've, I've got, got some baggage. I've got. I've got. I've got no tie to. Were that you stuff. aware that David Beckham is a player? I do know of David Beckham. of the title. I know him as. Like him. I know him as the uh, husband of one of the Spice Girls. Are they still married? Yes. Yeah, they're doing great. I'm just kidding. I did they've know got, he was a soccer player uh, and presumably a very good soccer player. Yeah, he uh, could. Bend it, bend it very well. I don't know what bending. You don't know means what that is. Soccer, it's you football. Get, sorry, football. Yeah, it's you. You when you shoot the ball or when you pass the ball, you you put curve on it. And that's something you want to do. You do. It's kind of like bowling, right? So if you've got like a free kick, you want to confound the goalie or the keeper, as they call them in England, and you they usually set up a wall, mm-hmm. and you want to the, the keeper sets the wall up where he thinks they can block it so that he doesn't he or she doesn't have to cover the whole goal. So if you can bend it like Beckham. Like Beckham around the wall, that means the keeper has to cover an area that they had hoped not to have to gotcha. cover. Yeah. It's one big fake out. <clears throat> right. They know where you want to put it. It's not faking them out that way. All right. But yeah, it is a disorienting shot sure. to have yeah. to try to stop. I gotcha. Do you know that they call the field the pitch? No. I did not. Soccer pitch. I will. In fact, I'm hoping that the next time we record, there's going to be so much jargon that we're going to have to apologize at the end and say, hey, I'm really sorry. If if you're not a fan of football, you're not going to understand this podcast. They don't say it like that in England. They say it like that. Football. (laughs) That was my carryover from when I took Spanish in high school. Football. Okay. Which that, that's not even a good no 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 not. I don't know what that is that's a really really bad Spanish accent that's that's fine um, but you can just say football if you want okay. or soccer that's that's acceptable is it acceptable did you in know that when Britain? the game ends in a tie so game games end in ties I knew but they that. call it a draw because the actual matchup of teams is called a tie so the word soccer originated in England oh. So boring. <laughs> no, it's super interesting because they had different types of football. Uh-huh. Like, and the type of football that we know as soccer was association football. Okay. And they took out the SOC out of association and expanded it to soccer. Oh, okay. So that specific type of football was known as soccer. And then I don't know why in America that's what we call it, but, but we do. Yeah. And we're right. And we didn't start it. Yeah. Anyway, that's the sort of. Uh, fascinating. Mm, can't wait to watch uh, this movie back already. And forth. Yeah. They don't, am, this, well, am I even going to understand is, this movie? The movie is not about the history of <laughs> soccer or football terminology. <laughs> you should have found that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your homework you're okay. going to have to do. All right. 
Uh, so anyways, if you want to reach out to us about Bend It Like Beckham, if you want to start following our social media because we're going to be maybe posting more sports movie stuff, I don't know. <laughs> find out. Find if, out. If that's, been, if that's been the encouragement you've needed. Yeah, I'd follow them, but they just don't <laughs> they post don't about, sports about sports movies. <laughs> so we've got Facebook, uh, Can We Still Be Friends podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Can We Still Be Friends podcast. We've got Instagram, Can We Still Be Friends Pod. Um, but then we've got our website, Can We Still Be Friends.net. That's where all of our episodes get posted. So you can go there and you can comment on any of our posts. And you can also check out our archive with, uh, what are we on? 80, 82. 82. This so, is episode 82. So uh, 81 previous episodes worth of archive you can dig through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so look for those movies that uh, maybe if you, if you jumped into this podcast later, you know, there's a lot to catch up on. Yeah. Um, you can shoot us an email anytime feedback at can we still be friends.net is where you can send those messages and uh, we would like to encourage you to uh, reach out to us vocally as well give us a call anytime the the number to call is 847-306-9532 i would say it's toll free but it's technically not but who who pays for calls anymore i don't know i what mean did toll free ever mean toll free you just don't have to pay for it yeah like if it was a, back in the day long distance you didn't have to pay for it right right 800 numbers you didn't have to pay for because mm. even though it would seem that they were long distance because they were not within your area code area code for you youngsters is those first three numbers of your number by the way which we back I, then you didn't have to even put those in if you were yeah. calling locally yeah. wow. what, a, what a time <laughs> what a time <laughs> really takes me back <laughs> we both had to ponder that for a while so you know our number is kind of a throwback but go right. for it. If you'd like to do the more uh, contemporary route for this, right. uh, feel free to just record yourself, your thoughts, your mm-hmm. ideas, and you know, package those up into an attachment in an email and right. send it off our way. Which we already said, but not in this context. Feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. Yeah, thank you for uh, uh, providing the email within this context. Yeah. So thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time for uh, Bending It Like Beckham. Right. Bend It Like Beckham. Oh, bend it like Beckham. Well, we will be... Bending, bending it. it like Beckham. Yes. And we'll catch you next time. Bye.